Um, first, thank you very much for inviting me here to Yale. Um, I begin directly with my text. Um, the Islamic anti-Semitism, as enshrined in the Khomeini state ideology, is a genocidal anti-Zionism. Um, uh, it adheres to a, uh, to a fundamentalist interpretation of Islamic rule. The Iranian state ideology denies the right of the Jewish people to self-determination. It demonizes the state of Israel as a member of the United States nations. After the end of German national socialism, the Islamic Republic of Iran is the first state to activate anti-Semitic policies as part of its foreign policy. I come now to the chapter of uh, what I call uh, revisionist teachers or imported anti-Semitism. It is a form of exogenous uh, anti-Semitism. Uh, the Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad dared the relativization of denial of Holocaust from some revisionists like Roger Garotti and Robert Farison and David Irving. Their works, including interviews with the deniers of the Shoah, are circulating through Iranian audiences and readers. For over two decades, the Iranian media have, in positive terms, reported on the aforementioned deniers of the Holocaust. Muhammad Ali Ramin, who organized the conference A World Without Zionism in October 2005, serves under the presidency of Ahmadinejad as secretary of the Ministry of Culture and Islamic guidance in, is convinced that there were no gas chambers in Auschwitz and that all figures European historians have spoken about are wrong. Amin refers exactly to the name revisionist Garoudi for his son and Arabic. Now I come to a form of indigenous um, or inherited anti-Semitism and genocidal uh, anti-Zionism. Um, Ahmadinejad inherited the ideology of genocidal anti-Zionism uh, from the godfather of Iranian Islamist Ayatollah Khomeini and Nabab Safavi. The origins of Khomeini's uh, anti-Semitism dates back to the early 1960s. Khomeini said on 13th of October 1964, I quote, I asked the Islamic governments why they are arguing about oil. Palestine has fallen into disfavor. Throw the Jews out of Palestine. You're useless. Khomeini also accused those who were not aggressive enough in their opposition to Israel of being in an audience alliance with the Jews and with the Shah. Um, today, we are confronted with similar argumentations when Ayatollah Khamenei warns that, quote, Israel has no fate but defeat and disappearance. Khomeini speaks of the killer, quote, killer cancer of Zionism. Uh, on 1st June 2010, a few months ago, the Iranian revolutionary leader said, Zionism is a new face and more aggressive of fascism. And on 4th June 2010, Khomeini recalls in his Friday prayers, prayer that his predecessor, Ayatollah Khomeini has spoken about Israel as a cancer. Then Khamenei asked his audience how to deal with cancer. And he answered himself, quote, you have to cut it off. Khamenei refers to Khomeini and repeated what Khomeini 
had said about the artificial Israeli people who must be eliminated. It was a quote. This form of anti-Semitism does not begin with the presidency of Ahmadinejad. A man whose denials of the Holocaust and calls for the destruction of Israel have come to embody the essence of anti-Jewish hatred in Iran. This Islamist, anti-Zionist, anti-Zionist propaganda has its historical roots in the modern Islamic movements in Iran. Fadayani Islam and the will to destroy Israel. The idea of Sharia state law was the foundational goal of the Fadayani Islam, a terrorist organization in the 50s led by Nawab Safavi. Um, uh, uh, the Iranian Supreme Leader Khamenei spoke with great enthusiasm of Safavi in January 2010. Consequently, uh, Safavi has been a hero of the Islamic Republic of Iran for 30 years. Khamenei said on 3rd January 2010, quote, I have to say that it was Nawab who first ignited my favor for the Islamic Revolution. Khamenei added that he has no doubt that Nawab Safavi, who he first met in Mashhad in the 50s, who kindly quotes the first fire in our hearts, uh, it was indeed a fire that ended in the catastrophe of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, Safavi was himself influenced by Iranian clerics from the Constitutional Revolution of 1905, like Ayatollah Nuri or and Asadabadi, and by the leader of Muslim Brothers, Albana. Nawab Safavi's main arguments are summarized by Khamenei, Khamenei Ali Khamenei with the following words, quote, the essence of his speech was that Islam must be revived. Islam um, uh, must be revived, Islam must rule. One of the main ideas Nawab Safavi taught his followers was the martyr's death, which in fact was terrorism. Kashani and Safavi mobilized volunteers against the foundation of Israel. Ahmad Qolam Muhammadi writes, which is an Iranian author uh, in the Islamic Republic of Iran, that Ayatollah Kashani and Nabab Safavi held a meeting in Sultani Mosque in Tehran on 12 December 1947, at which they incited attendance to organize a voluntary army to fight in defense of the Palestinians against the Jewish movement. About 5,000 Iranian Muslims signed to be volunteers in the war against the Jews. Qaisari, another uh, uh, author, reports about another anti-Jewish meeting organized by Fedayani Islam on 12 January 1948, mobilizing recruits for Palestine. Um, Safavi even tried to convince the Shah to support this mission. In a de declaration signed by Nawab Safavi, he declared that 5,000 Mujahids had asked for an allowance from the Iranian government to go to Palestine to fight Israel. Safavi even met with one of the ministers of the Shah, Ibrahim Hakimi, and requested money and weapons. But Reza Shah refused. The Iranian government didn't help the new, um, uh, the new Muslim revolutionary movement. By way of background, Majmai Mujahideen Islam, which is a leading 
faction in the Islamic Republic of Iran was under the leadership of Fadayan Islam at that time. Another subsequent meeting on the same issue was held on 21st May 1948 in the same Sultani Mosque. Safavi and Kashani both attended the meeting where Safavi read a pro proclamation made by Fadayan Islam which noted the wild attacks of the Jews and the necessity of helping the Palestinians. Fars News, an official media uh, 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 website in Iran, writes on 13 January 2010 that over the course of the day, Muslims were demonstrating in Tehran against the Jews. Safavi even had strong influence over the Muslim brothers as Amanullah Shafai stresses. The Arab nationalists and the Muslim brothers were too weak in the eyes of the revolutionary Shia movement led by Safavi. Safavi believed that the Arab, Arab nationalism was not a viable uh, solution. A, solu a strong Islamic movement was necessary. <coughs> Safavi traveled to Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and Egypt on 11 September uh, 1953 to attend conferences and met famous Muslims as Sheikh um, as Zahabi and Ayatollah Sadruddin Sadr. Regardless of where Safavi spoke, his message was clear and consistent. The head of the Arab governments have to organize a united front, this is a quote, united front against the foreigners. There was a great need for the awakening of the Muslims and throwing out of the Zionists. He believed that the Palestinian problem had to get Islamized and not Arabized. Safavi went to great lengths to rally Arab support for an Islamic movement. He met with Sayyid Qut, whose works were later translated by Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, the contemporary supreme leader of the Islamic, Republic, uh, Islamic Revolution, Republic of Iran, into Persia. Safavi met even the king of Jordan and told him, quote, cousin, I expect from you that you stand up and help Islam and for the and for the occupied Palestinian areas from the claws um, uh, of the Jews. In the same month, Safavi went with 70 people to Jerusalem, but only 10 people went with him to the border of Israel and prayed in front of Israeli soldiers. Shafai reports that the former president of Indonesia, Ahmad Sukarno, was part of that group. Sukarno later asked him why he ordered people to get so close to the Israeli soldiers, Safavi answered that he wanted to make victims of them to awaken the Islamic world. It was Safavi who suggested organizing an international organization of Islamic revolution. In one meeting, Safavi even criticized Yasser Arafat, still a student leader at that time. Palestine, quote, Palestine is under the booze of the Zionists, and you want to become an engineer? Safavi said to uh, Arafat, you have to fight honorably and defend your land. After the Islamic Revolution of 79, when Arafat came to Tehran, he told Ayatollah Khomeini, quote, when I was a student in Egypt, in Egypt, one day the martyr Nawab Safavi came to the university and held a lecture. After the end of his lecture, I went to him and introduced myself. 
his Habibi told to Arafat, told, uh, um, um, you are the son of Ali, but your people are in captivity. You have to rescue the Palestinians from the claws of the Zionists. Arafat said that the revolutionary soul of Nawab Safavi moved me. He left university and began to work for the movement. Fatih Yakan, who died in 1997, was a Lebanese Islamic cleric and was among the activists of the Islamic movement in the 50s and the head of the Lebanese Islamic Action Front. Recalling his meeting with Safavi, Yakan says that the revolutionary leader told, told him, quote, Brothers, always when I hear the voice of Mu a Muazin, I consider the world to be a little as a mosquito, so that I could crush it and follow my way. Such a vision, vision makes clear that Safavi was ready to pay any price for his um, goals. Safavi argued uh, even with the Egypt President Jamal Abdel Nasser and asked him why he had forbidden the organization of Egypt uh, Muslim Brothers. Safavi asked, are you not a Muslim? Mehdi Ghaisari writes that it was Safavi who urged the Egyptian, Egyptian uh, Muslim Brothers to continue fighting against Israel despite the prohibition. Iranian Islamist movement had its teachers also in its own history and were in the same time inciting even the Egypt Muslim brothers to get in, uh, more violent. Mehdi Sari quotes Ben Gurion saying about Nawab Safavi quote from Ben Gurion, the com this combative comes man this combative man comes to spark war between the Arabs and the Israelis. And Qaisari quoted Sayyid Qutb saying on the other side about Nawab Safavi, you are in my heart. Safavi's movement never got the mass support in, uh, it needed in Iran. It was Ayatollah Khomeini who converted the same ideas to an ideology for the Iranian masses. Khomeini's, uh, Khomeini became active in the revolutionary movement in the 60s. A look at his speeches shows the progression of anti-Zionism. In a speech on 13 October 1964, he said, quote, throw the Jews out of Palestine. Indeed, for Ayatollah Khomeini, every modern idea was Jewish and influenced by the Zionists. Even the idea of emancipation of women, as he often stressed. On 12 September 1967, Khomeini labeled Israel as a zeditious essence, Mardei Fassad. He said its roots of corruption and threatening the Muslim countries with the effort of all Muslim states and Muslim nations, it must be uprooted. And on uh, 2nd December of 1975, Khomeini said that Muslims should use every possible way and help their Muslims brothers in the way of liberation of Palestine and the destruction of Zionism. It too was Khomeini who called Israel a cancerous growth uh, soon after the revolution again and created Al-Qurstay. The Iranian Islamists established terrorists in the uh, Khomeini's constitutions. I don't read it anymore. Iran calls itself the mother of Islamists. That is why Iran hosts terrorist organizations which have the aim of reinstating Islamist 
fundamentalist states in the Muslim world by destroying Israel. The Islamization of the world remains a fictional utopia. Utopia. The, the fundamentalists don't believe that the social meaningfulness of Islam was in the social cultural history of, man, mankind, of mankind limited in time and in geographical borders. In general, Iranian politicians encourage Palestinian terrorist organizations to conceive their goal of eliminating the Zionist regime, the cancer in the earth of the Islamic world. Uh, isn't, isn't it a logical consequence of this historical development since the 40s and 50s to now that President Ahmadinejad said on 26 October of 20, 2005, quote, the Jerusalem occupying regime must be erased from the annals of history. Beside the question, if Iran is military able to destroy Israel without endangering the whole Middle East, to get destroyed in a horrible war, it is important to understand that the contemporary state ideology of genocidal anti-Zionism is to be seen in the context of creating a totalitarian Islamist state. The genocidal, the genocidal anti-Zionism begins with the fact that as long as the Islamist ambition to reclaim the Islamic world and to realize its utopia of the Islamization of the whole world exists, the world is dealing with a new form of Islamist, uh, 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 Islamist um, and anti-Semitism, which is a mere genocidal anti-Zionist that demands the destruction of Israel. One could say that the Khomeini salvatory anti-Zemitism is a mix of Islamist Iranian nationalism and the irrational will to lead the world, whole Islamic world and the religious visions of Khomeini's Velayat al-Fahri as a role model of the whole Islamic world and as the best democracy and as the best understanding of Sharia because the Islamic law would be the best in the totalitarian understanding. It is a salvatory anti-Semitism because in the vision, in this vision, Israel has no right to exist. In a sense, salvation will come through the destruction of Israel and Western democracies. This is a genuine Islamist form of anti-Semitism and it is and is not imported from Europe, but does employ European anti-Semitic uh, stereotypes, including caricatures. Genocidal anti-Semitism made in Iran gets combustible because of its claim to build an Islamic world government. This idea, as a, this idea is mixed with the fiction of the return of the 12th Imam. The Shia utopia accompanies with the idea of a bloody last battle which shall lead to the victory of Islam over the decaying Western world. In fact, Israel is seen as a representative of a Western world which shall go down. I think if we could wait for questions till after. Uh, everyone has spoken. Mm -hmm. yes. okay. I'm going to wait till yes. all three have spoken. First. Yes, yes. yes.
Patterson. I'm affiliated with the University of Texas in Dallas, and the, uh, the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies there. I'm, going to, I don't, I'm not sure why I'm in the uh, session on Iran. I'm not even going to say anything about Iran. Uh, I'm going to talk about Hamas and Muslim Brotherhood and Nazis and Hitler. Uh, I suppose because uh, Hamas gets some money from Iran. Maybe that's why I wound up here. Um, as Article 2 of the, of the Hamas Charter indicates, that Hamas is a, a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, so I will be referring to uh, the ideologues uh, Hassan al-Banna, uh, Saeed Qutub, as well as the uh, as well as the charter of the uh, of Hamas. Um, I should also, those of you who've heard uh, talks by David Sokol on the film, Jeffrey Herf and uh, Bassam TV today, have already heard that there are connections between Nazis and. Islamic Jihad. I, I, I refer to Jihadism and not uh, Islamism or something of that sort to you know to to single out the um, the ideological thinking that is driven by violence. Um, but there are there are a number of points of contact between the ideologies. I, it seems to me that Islamic Jihadism is a modern phenomenon. It's not a, a throwback to medieval thinking. Um, and part of it's, you know, the, the, what makes it modern is precisely what it has taken from um, National Socialism in particular and, and, a, and a certain uh, strain of thinking in Europe in general. Um, mein Kampf uh, was, the portions of Mein Kampf at least were already translated in the 1930s. Um, in 1963, there was a, an edition of an Arabic edition of Mein Kampf translated and published by uh, a Nazi war criminal, um, Louis Haydn, who took the name when he converted to Islam of uh, Louis al-Hajj. On uh, page, it is, it's, the Arabic title is Kafahi, which is, you know, struggle, my struggle. Um, but on page two of the two-page introduction, uh, Louis al-Hajj refers to Hitler's struggle as a, as a jihad. So um, you have this, you know, the language of jihad, Imposed on uh, the discourse of Mein Kampf already in Arabic. Now, one of the things that uh, Islamic jihadism draws into its thinking from Nazis is how do you think about Jews? What is the problem with the Jews? Um, when it comes to the uh, policy of extermination vis a vis the Jews, an ideological stance and worldview of Eldon Shalom on the Jews. Uh, it seems to me this is not reducible, uh, in the case of the Nazis, to scapegoating or xenophobia or economic envy or any of the usual things that we like to you know, invoke to try to explain why people are doing violence to, to their neighbors. Um, my friend of mine named uh, John Roth told me about a, a small town in northern Norway, which is pretty far north, <laughs> with a monument to the 12 Jews that the Nazis went there to slaughter. And you don't go to the Arctic if you're scapegoated. Um, it's not even about, I would say, and at least as Americans think about race, it's not even about race. It's more about Razenzela, Razenzela, the race soul. Um, Alfred Rosenberg, one of the chief ideologues of, of Nazism, stated that the Aryan Geist, 
poisoned not just by Jewish blood, but by Judaism, because the ism is in the blood. Uh, the term race, he explains, is a synonym for soul, for character, for essence. So um, he goes on to say, therefore, because it's the ism is in the blood, every Jew is inclined to think Talmudically, as he put it. Therefore, just like as, as you can't tolerate a single case of smallpox, everyone who's a character of the pathogen has to be eliminated. It's not just the religious ones, because the others, uh, it lies dormant in those who reject it. Um, in a similar vein, Saeed Kuta uh, writes that the Jews, as Jews, are by nature, or in their essence, determined to fight against Allah. Um, they, by nature, sow corruption and confusion, says Kuta. Therefore, it pleases Allah to kill Jews. Um, since it pleases Allah, killing Jews for the jihadists is not about freeing Palestine, as uh, Professor TB pointed out. It's not about driving out an oppressor. It's not even about revenge. It's about serving God, just as you know, eradicating evil is, is one of the ways that we serve God. Just as a Nazi, a true Nazi, cannot be a true Nazi without implementing an exterminationist agenda vis-a-vis -vis the Jews, a pious Muslim, from a jihadist viewpoint, can't be pious without killing Jews. It's part of piety. Uh, some of the jihadists describe it as a, as a sixth pillar. Uh, jihad, I think, in general, as a sixth pillar. Now, I look at some, I'd like to look at some of the specifics uh, that we find in uh, Mein Kampf that get echoed in, uh, for early on uh, in Muslim Brotherhood and later uh, after uh, 1988 in uh, the Hamas Charter. Hamas discourse as well. Um, Hitler describes, for example, the struggle of National Socialism as a struggle for the soul of the child. And to the child, its first appeal is addressed. Uh, Hassan al-Banna commented on this, the, the importance of this. Hassan al-Banna, as you know, founded the Brotherhood in 1928 in uh, six other Muslims. Um, there, uh, Hassan Abana undertook uh, you know, organized efforts to, to educate Muslims to jihad, to uh, organize youth groups that were modeled after what the Nazis were doing. Um, just so, Article 18 of the, of the Charter of Hamas says that uh, children must be educated for jihad. That is to say, for, for, for what passes as martyrdom, uh, under no rational notion is killing yourself in order to murder others, martyrdom. Uh, martyrdom is when you refuse to kill people and die, not when you die in the process of killing people, seems to me. Um, in keeping with the, the accent on violence, on the use of force, um, Hitler writes in Mein Kampf that uh, only through um, Violence can a doctrine be eliminated. He says the complete annihilation of a doctrine can be carried out only through a process of extermination. That is only through the sword. Uh, Hassan al-Banna describes the motto of Islam in, in one word as force, force of arms and force of doctrine. Um, of course, it's not for, it's not for nothing that uh, weapons appear on the emblems of you know, Muslim Brotherhood, of Hamas, Hezbollah, Every jihadist organization has weapons on its own. 
you go to the United Nations building, you see the flags of the nations of the world. There is one flag there with a weapon on its flag. The Saudi flag. Um, just so, uh, Article 7 of the Charter um, states that the, the necessity of extermination as an ultimate aim, that uh, the, 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 the ultimate aim is not just to have a place to live in Palestine. Um, Article 15 contains the refrain, I will assault and kill, assault and kill, assault and kill. With regard to propaganda, not just uh, what kind of propaganda you spread and the images you, you, um, you incorporate, but what is it anyway? What is it and what is its purpose? Uh, Obama indicated he, uh, he had quite a debt to Hitler in, in impressing upon him the importance of propaganda, the power of propaganda, um, and what works and what doesn't work. First of all, it has to be addressed to you know, the lowest common denominator of society. Uh, Hitler says in Mein Kampf that if propaganda renounces primitiveness of expression, it does not find its way to the feeling of the broad masses. What is the purpose? The purpose is not simply to convince someone to adopt a certain point of view. The purpose, according to Hitler, is to promote proud self-reliance, manly defiance, and wrathful hatred. It's what not too... What, what kind of hatred? Wrathful. Zonica. <laughs> wrathful. Full of wrath. Wrathful hatred is how uh, Mannheim translates Zonica. Um, it's a good translation. Therefore, because it's not, it's not to promote a truth, uh, but to incite hatred, uh, Hitler also understood, and discusses this, the importance of deception. And the, the famous line from Mein Kampf, something of the most insolent lie will always remain and stick. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood has accused Jews of infecting girls with AIDS and syphilis and then sending them out, you know, among the Arabs. Um, they're accused of, of supplying Muslim women with aphrodisiac chewing gum. Um, they're accused of deliberately spreading cancer among the Arabs with carcinogenic cucumbers and shampoo. They are accused of uh, trafficking in drugs, something we've seen um, at this conference already, devil worship, and God forbid, legalizing homosexuality. So in other words, you name the evil, and the Jews are the source of the evil. Um, that's that's the message of the propaganda. The Jews are the source of the evil. The Jews are uh, are not just a political problem. They're not just a military problem. It's not a cultural problem. It's a it's a metaphysical problem. So the Zionist entity is not just about real estate. Um, Hitler himself comments on Zion and Zionism. He says in Mein Kampf, um, it doesn't enter their heads to build up a Jewish state in Palestine for the purpose of living there. All they want is a central organization for their international world swindle. The Jewish state, according to Hitler, is, as he writes, is completely unlimited as to territory. It's not about Palestine. Um, peace in Palestine is not going to make this go away. 
so uh, uh, just so um, Sayukuta viewed uh, the Jewish state as just a small part of the universal worldwide Jewish conspiracy. He, he was thinking in these terms as well. Article 32 of the Hamas Charter says, uh, after Palestine, the Zionists aspired to expand from the Nile to the Euphrates, as indicated in the protocols of the elders of Zion, this is their source. Um, the Islamic resistance movement, Hamas, considers itself to be the spearhead of the struggle with world Zionism. It's a worldwide struggle. It's not just Gaza. Um, and of course, uh, if, you, if you've seen uh, the, you know, propaganda images um, from the, the, you know, the jihadist world, you'll, you'll see ex uh, one exact image from Nazi propaganda, the octopus with the tentacles encompassing the entire world. So what's at stake is all of humanity in, this, in, the, in the battle. And because the Jews are the source of all evil, they are, it's a metaphysical threat they are, in an important sense, invisible. They are what Hitler calls the invisible wire pullers. Okay. Now, they, they, it manifests itself in things like the Jewish state, uh, things like, uh, I don't know, um, you know, political issues, military issues, but the, the evil itself, like Satan, what is driving it, is invisible and ubiquitous. Um, Article 22 of the Hamas Charter states that the Jews are, are, have always formed secret societies. They are secretly behind the French Revolution. They are secretly behind the Russian Revolution. Uh, some of their secret societies take, take on the front of Freemasons, the Rotary Club, uh, the Lions Club. They uh, secretly were behind the formation of the League of Nations in order to rule the world and the United Nations. Big Zionist organization, right? In order to rule the world. So it's, it, what you see is never what is really the problem in this thinking, in this demonizing. I mean, demonizing means rendering invincible and invisible the evil, maybe if not invincible, at least invisible, the evil that you are addressing. Uh, both uh, the Nazis and Hamas, the ideologues of National Socialism and Hamas both refer to the world Jewish hydra. Um, it's, it, it's not a, again, a political movement that's threatening another political movement. It's an evil, it's something monstrous, it's something bestial, it's something that requires a holy war to oppose. Now, in history, I mean, people fought wars a few times, right? But it is possible to fight a war and understand you're fighting other men, mostly, and respect your enemy. Respect his courage, his resourcefulness, his valor, a certain sense of military honor, and so on. But when you're fighting evil, you have to oppose evil with something holy. And there can be no compromise. There can be no peace treaty. So Article 13 of the Hamas Charter says peace, peace initiatives, the so-called peaceful solutions, the international conferences to resolve the Palestinian problem are all contrary to the beliefs of the Islamic resistance movement. You can negotiate 
with evil any more than you can negotiate with cancer? How many cases are okay? How many cases of AIDS are tolerable? No. There's no negotiation. Um, I'll wrap up with a couple of words here. Um, this brings me, you know, addressing the, the, the matter of holy war, brings me to, uh, I guess, a point that uh, you know, I've talked about concerning distinctions. I've talked about similarities. There's a couple of important distinctions here, I think, too, between Nazism and Islamic jihadism. Um, first of all, uh, in this case, I, I don't think you can get too far with understanding this Jew hatred uh, without at some point talking about God. Uh, especially when you, you see Sayyid Qutb uh, identifying Jews as, by, in their nature, in their, in their essence, as falsifiers of the divine truth. Of course, he invokes the Quran as his source for this in the Quran, says that the Jews you know, falsify the revelation of God. Right? Um, it seems to me that the jihadist evil in some ways transcends the Nazi evil with, by invoking a scriptural foundation. Um, the Nazis eclipse God by um, eclipsing an absolute obligation, don't murder. You know, that comes from beyond with the, a will that comes from within. What the Nazis did was limited only by the will that they could muster and the imagination they could, they could let go. Um, I worked on uh, an English edition of uh, the Russian Black Book, and I was reading hundreds of pages of first-hand accounts of Nazi atrocities in the East. What hit me was what they did was not unimaginable. It was everything imaginable because there was no limiting principle, we're going too far. This is the difference between the Crusades and the Nazis. You could be a Christian and say, wait a minute, maybe we're killing too many people. There's nothing the Nazis can invoke. They have no, so it's, it's the will that comes from within. Uh, it seems to me that in the case of Hamas and other Islamic jihadists, and rather than this eclipse of God by my will from within, there's an appropriation of God. Uh, the charter of Hamas is, the charter of Allah. Hamas is Allah. It's not as if we have to find a will to accomplish this task, like a, a Himmler's Poland speech, right? There's nothing of that. It's, it's, it's a usurpation of God, and I would argue that jihadism here is a rebellion against God, a rebellion against Allah. Um, so just when you thought, perhaps, that when you, when you look at Nazis, that uh, the evil can't go any farther. It morphs into something else. Um, once killing Jews becomes a holy act pleasing to God, a religious obligation, the sign of righteousness, there is no negotiation that can happen. And uh, on that happy note, I'll honor my time limit.
Good afternoon. I am Samuel Feldberg from the University of São Paulo. You may uh, ask yourself what somebody from Brazil uh, has to do with uh, an Iranian, Iranian question. It's uh, mostly related uh, with uh, the research uh, that uh, we do regarding uh, Holocaust teaching and the Arab-Israeli conflict. So that's point that brings uh, the subjects together and I have been uh, worried about uh, what uh, is happening in Iran in military terms uh, and uh, the development of a nuclear capacity and that uh, has brought me to look into how uh, the discourse uh, or the uh, uh, expressions of the Iranian leadership uh, have uh, how they have been similar to what we can see during uh, the period of Nazi Germany and what came before that. And here we have a conflict point also with what uh, Professor Patterson presented. Uh, and the feeling I had of uh, if this is could be uh, a preparation uh, for dehumanization and uh, delegitimation or dehumanization of Jews and delegitimation uh, of Israel in preparation for what uh, Iran eventually could uh, achieve in terms of uh, military capacity. Uh, along the last uh, months the situation has uh, developed very quickly and uh, every phase that uh, has been considered a last uh, step in terms of uh, impeding the Iranian uh, nuclear program to progress has passed and uh, we are now practically these days at the moment where the Boucher reactor is uh, being fueled by the, by the Russians which in principle would uh, eliminate the possibility of a, a, an Israeli or an American attack against the reactor itself without a great uh, dissemination of reactivity. So uh, what I will present to you is mostly thoughts that are not, uh, don't, don't bring an answer, but uh, a lot of questions. And uh, I hope that uh, when I finish, we can eventually discuss uh, a couple of, this, uh, of these ideas. Um, okay, this, this month of August marked the 65th anniversary of the end of the Second World War a war that had among its main events destruction of Europe's Jewish population. The Holocaust, as it became known, didn't start at the gas vans of Pelno, nor at the pits of Babiar, or at the gas chambers of Treblinka and Auschwitz. It started almost 20 years before in the streets of a Germany defeated at the end of the First World War and engulfed in the socialist revolution that ravaged the country. In the rallies that brought together the disillusioned population of the former empire, one of the main targets of their frustration was the Jew, pointed by radical, radical preachers as the responsible for Germany's fate. It was during those years that Hitler wrote Mein Kampf, where already in the first pages, <coughs> acknowledging his ignorance of anything Jewish, he proceeds to compare the Jew with a, with a maggot in a rotten body, starting the dehumanizing process that through the images of rats shown in the eternal Jew, will culminate in the extermination of utilizing gas chambers. On a further paragraph also related to the extermination idea, Hitler writes, I quote, 
gives us pestilence, spiritual pestilence, worse than the Black Death of olden times, and the people was being infected with it. And the scoundrel ends up like a bar garbage separator, splashing his filth in the face of humanity. This scribbles who poison men's souls with germ carriers, like germ carriers of the worst sort, on their fellow men. We have been witnessing for some time a revival of the calls, especially among Muslim population, incited by their leaders, calling for targeting Jews all over the world, sometimes disguised as attacks on Israel and its policies. And then Semitic remarks have been voiced by personalities like British Prime Minister Cameron, cineast Oliver Stone, and American journalist Helen Thomas. For more than sex, for more than 60 years, Arab leaders have utilized anti-Semitic expressions to criticize Israel and condemn Israel's existence, often comparing the occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and the fight against terror with Nazi, Nazi policies of the 40s. This trend has increased with the Second Intifada, the Second Lebanon War, and Operation, Operation Castle in Gaza. These conflicts between Israel and Hezbollah in Lebanon and with Hamas in, Gaza, in the Gaza Strip have been equated to genocide in an effort to demonize Israel and erode its justification for self-defense. Although highly dam damaging to Israel's image around the world, after the 60-day war in 1967, none of these events have ever represented an existential threat to Israel. A new combination has, however, been introduced by Iran's coming capacity to develop nuclear bombs and long-range missiles, coupled with violent expressions of anti-Semitism incitement for Israel's destruction and denial of the Holocaust. For Iran's, for Iran's capacity to influence the relations between Israel and its neighbors is as important as it, its eventual capacity to attack Israel directly. Israel's strategic security has evolved along the last six years from a high vulnerability at the time of its creation to an illusory sense of invulnerability after the Six-Day War that was badly shaken during the Yom Kippur War of 1973. After the peace agreement with Egypt and serious recognition that it could not defeat Israel alone, the Arab-Israeli confrontation went over a major change from symmetric to asymmetric conflict. These days, when Israel faces the threat of a conflict against Iran, eventually involving Syria and aided by Hezbollah and Hamas, we are back to the times of conventional nation-state warfare but risking the involvement of non-conventional weapons. When Ahmadinejad declares at public rallies in Farsi, so not aimed at the world's audience, I quote, this terrorist and criminal state is backed by foreign powers, but this regime will soon be swept away by the Palestinians. Or, Israel's days are numbered, and the peoples of the region would not miss the narrowest opportunity to annihilate this false regime, or still, thanks to God, your wish will soon be realized and this germ of corruption will be wiped off the face of the world, same terminology the Nazis used. This is clearly a repeated call for the imminent destruction of Israel and not a one-time event, calling for the Palestinians and the peoples of the region to engage in genocide becomes especially dangerous and feasible if considered under an Iranian nuclear umbrella. Some of these declarations are directly related to the Protocols of the Elder of Zion, which say, among their Jews, there have always been those who killed God's prophets and who opposed justice and righteousness. Historically, historically, there are many accusations against the Jews. For example, it was said that they were the source of such deadly diseases as plague and typhus, 
This is because the juicer fills the people. For a time, people also said that the poisoned water wells belonging to the Christians and thus killed them. Iranian authorities do not even bother to cover this anti-Semitism by using Zionists instead of Jews. The Iranian leadership seems to have the same worldview of the terrorists that attacked the Twin Towers on 9-11, and I quote, Jews were the wire pullers not only of the media but also of the financial world and of politics as well. As Professor Patterson presented, the Jews were behind America's Gulf War, the Balkan Wars, the Chechen War, and since New York City was the center of world Jewry, the War of Liberation had to start in New York. Just a couple of months before that event, Hamas terrorists killed almost 40 people in suicide attacks in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, consolidating a process that started in the 30s with the Islamic Brotherhood attacks against the Jews in Palestine, not against the British or the Egyptian elite, elite collaborating with them. The adoption of, by the Brotherhood of the concept of death leading to martyrdom would generate the suicide killers acting after the 1980s who substituted Palestinian political terror of the previous decades. The Brotherhood founder wrote at the time to a nation that perfects the industry of death and which knows how to die nobly. God gives proud life in this, in this world and eternal grace in the life to come, which was answered by the cross of chanting, chanting like, we are not afraid of death, we desire it, let us die in redemption for Muslims. Modern Islamic fundamentalism, fundamentalism has turned back to the face foundation when Jews stood in the way of the prophet and his divine mission. As we have seen in repeated presentations yesterday, Muslim anti-Semitism is legitimated by the prophet Muhammad fight against the Jewish tribes that were expelled or killed and sold into slavery, and by the Quran saying that Jews are to be considered the worst enemies of, of the believers. It was reinforced after the defeat of Nazi Germany and the shift of the focus from Europe to Palestine. Since the beginning of the 50s, the Egyptian president Nasser threatened to throw the Jews into the sea, and after the Iranian revolution, it was Hezbollah who took the torch again in, in this race against Israel, while Iran was busy fighting Iraq until 1988. Those years saw the birth of Hamas that has since then fought for the destruction of the Israeli state. As we have also seen in previous presentations, Holocaust denial includes not only ignoring the massacre against European Jews, but also accusing, accusing Jews of being behind World War II, where they collected immense benefits from trading in war materials and prepared for the establishment of their state and inspiring the establishment of the United Nations and the Security Council in order to rule the world by their intermediary. Denier, denial or accusations serve the same cause of accusing the Jews demonizing them in Israel and preparing the way for a new genocide. There is a great controversy these days regarding the need and the wisdom in attacking Iran to interrupt the development of its nuclear program. As we have seen before, the Iranian leadership nurtures a fanatical messianic anti-Semitism that believes in the Jewish capacity of controlling the world to the point of inventing the Holocaust for its benefits. Those against it say such an attack would do great damage to the United States in Iraq and Afghanistan, where Iran would counterattack. An Israeli strike would lead to the closing of the Strait of Hormuz, the lifeline for access to the Gulf Gulf's oil, tripling the price of oil, and bringing havoc to the world's economy. It would prompt 
Muslims throughout the world to rise against Western interests. It would spark a Middle Eastern war that might drag in the United States already bogged in Iraq and Afghanistan. It would also be the end of Obama's government opening doors to Muslim world. Such an attack would probably not stop the Islamic Republic from developing a nuclear capacity and would actually make it more likely that Iran would strike Israel with whatever weapons are available. It would also provoke Iran's revolutionary guard corps to deploy its terrorist assets against Israel and the United States. Hezbollah would launch all the missiles it has imported from Tehran and Damascus since 2006, the last time they clashed against Israel. It's, it would also put an enormous strain on Israel's relation with its relations with its European partners and rally the Iranian population behind the government, destroying any chances of uh, the pro-democracy pro green movement would have of changing the, re the regime. These are the, uh, this is the position of those that uh, oppose an attack against Iran. Those in, fa in favor of an attack say these fears are mostly overblown that although dangerous for Israel, a preventive strike remains the most effective answer to the possibility of uh, the Iranian leadership and the Revolutionary Guards having nuclear weapons, provided the Israeli Air Force is capable of ex executing it and assuming no U.S. military action, an Israeli bombardment remains the only conceivable means of, of derailing or seriously delaying Iran's nuclear program and equally important traumatizing Tehran. On the other hand, an Israeli strike now, after the rise of the Green Movement and the crackdown on it, is more likely to shake the regime that would have a massive, uh, then would have a massive, massive American attack in 2002, when Tehran's clandestine nuclear program was first revealed. And if anything can jolt the pro-democracy movement forward, contrary to now passionately accepted conventional wisdom, an Israeli strike against the nuclear sites is it. There are many who believe this discussion is unnecessary since Iran doesn't really pose an existential threat to Israel. The US or Saudi Arabia and whatever threat it does, it does pose can be countered with progressive pressure and the threat of Israeli and American nuclear retaliation. Tehran may support anti-Israeli terrorist groups, but there is no need to overreact. The regime is as scared of Israel's military power as Israel is scared of mullahs with news. America's permanent job would therefore be to calm the Israelis down or failing that, arm twist them into inaction. So the question the most serious analysts are asking is whether there is already a balance of terror in the Middle East and if a nuclear Iran has to be accepted as a rational player in the region to be balanced by Israel. And when such an equilibrium is reached, most important will be the perception of non-state organizations like Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and Hezbollah regarding the coverage of Iranians' nuclear umbrella and the opportunities it will offer regarding further attacks on Israel. In a sense, a return to the worldwide proxy model of the Cold War. In the not-so-distant past, not only Israelis were targeted by suicide terror attacks, but also Jewish interests in Argentina, namely the EMIAS Community Center, as well as the Israeli embassy in Buenos Aires and several American institutions around the world. Regarding the Palestinian issue, many observers, especially European Arab leaders, claim that peace between Israel and its neighbors and the Palestinians would eliminate antagonism against Israel. We have seen from different scholars here already uh, the 
opinion that uh, this is not the case. Uh, it may be true for those who believe the Israeli-Palestinian confrontation more or less as a political and geographical struggle between two peoples, but for those like the Iranian leaders who believe this is a dis dispute between God and the devil, a peace process would solve nothing. Although the average Iranian is full of personal contempt for Jews that uh, has marked the classical European <coughs> American anti-Semite, according to Brett Safin's Iran's psychological state resembles the militarist Japanese mindsets of 1930s, a markedly obsessed non-Western culture with global ambitions whose worst instincts were deterred at enormous cost. Former President Rafsanjani, viewed as a moderate by most in the West, described the creation of Israel as a united conspiracy against Islam, led by Jews. And America's aggression cannot be understood without first assessing the role of the Jews within the U.S., in the economy, and in the media. One of the building blocks of the new Iranian state, the Iran-Iraq war, with its hundreds of thousands of Iranian victims, would not have been possible without the U.S., the, uh, without the US meaning Jewish support of Iraqi aggression. This is all quoted from Rafsanjani. When we look, therefore, at Iran's capacity to project power in the region, more than an existential threat to Israel, Iran probably means an hegemonic actor with the capacity of cowing its Gulf neighbors and influencing the politics of Central Asia, generating historically, going back 
you know, too, right. too early. So, I don't know if I'm making any sense, but those are some of my questions and thoughts that come perhaps in terms of Christianity. I would ask you, um, does Islam have um, an issue with Christianity? And, and if not, why isn't there? If this is um, a holy fight for world dominion. Christianity comes from the Jews. Right. It goes back to the Jews. Oh, so that's <laughs> okay. Um, uh, I will deal with practical questions. Okay. okay. So I, I, I don't want to go off on Okay, no, I know. Okay. All right. You know, explaining Christian anti-Semitism, but I think it's about a lot more. No, no, no. I meant anti-Semitism against Christians by. Oh, I don't think they're, they're, they're not singled out. You're an infidel or you're not. You're an infidel or an outfidel. They're not. <laughs> First, in the classical Islamic Sharia, fiqh, not Sharia, um, the Christians and uh, the Jews are both infidels. Okay. First, I went and can read it uh, in the uh, different uh, books of different ayatollahs. Uh, I would say because I don't believe that uh, the, uh, the fundamentalists uh, they have learned a lot from Europe, but my issue is that they have their own motives to go on. And they would have the same problems with a Christian state, I'm sure. If one day uh, uh, in Lebanon, let's say, uh -huh. a Christian movement would come and they would say, uh, we want a Christian state in, uh, in Lebanon or somewhere else, I am sure that they would, because the problem is a pro problem of power first. The problem is the problem of, uh, as Tibi said, uh, of, of Islamic State, of Islamic rule. The consequences, one of the consequences is anti-Semitism. Uh, it would be uh, anti-Christianity, I don't know what, if one day, as they say, in the heart of Islamic world, the idea of a Christian state would uh, somehow occurred. It would be offensive. What? It would be offensive. Yes, it would be. Uh, yes. I mean, uh, I think that, um, I mean, this is the, what TV said. Uh, I'm not always the same opinion as TV because I think that um, it is correct to differentiate between Islam and, and Islamism, but I mean, uh, the Muslims have to learn what and to reinterpret Islam or say, okay, I, I say always, the Muslims have to learn from the Jewish people. <laughs> and then, uh, my, my, uh, one sentence already. Uh, why they have to learn? Because we have a Jewish state, but all my Israeli friends said, well, you know, we are Jewish, we have a Jewish state, but we don't practice the Jewish law in our as a state law. Right. Yes, sir. Yeah, I look forward to uh, David Patterson's book. Uh, 
uh, well, I guess I have two questions. One, one, one to you, David. They, um, you're methodologically uh, operated by pointing out similarities between various Nazi arguments and various Islamist arguments. And I wonder if in the book you talk about the lineages and the, um, the, the intellectual history of the incorporation of these ideas. It, 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 you know, the famous uh, correlation is not causation. Uh, it, that, that's one question. And the second question about Iran is that in Washington, uh, all the policymakers know all the terrible things that the Iranians have been saying about Israel. So the question in Washington now is uh, basically, is Iran today like China uh, in the Mao era? And Mao said these lunatic things about nuclear weapons and World War III, about how China would survive it. And then China got the bomb, and it behaved like the Soviet Union and the United States. So the most, many American political scientists say, well, you get the bomb, you, know, you, you look into the mirror, you look, you look at your own death, and you become rational. So the more nuclear weapons around the world, the better rational. <laughs> um, <laughs> this, this is the argument that Kenneth Waltz made, right. uh, and uh, I'm not joking. Uh, and uh, uh, John Mearsheimer is a student of Kenneth Waltz, and so the more the merrier. The argument for a military strike on Iran, the most powerful argument, is that Iran is not is a this is a leaps over a Rubicon. That this would be the first state since the invention of nuclear weapons that could not be deterred by the prospect of massive nuclear retaliation. And so that's the debate that's going on in the next year or two. Can Iran be deterred? Because if, if, if you conclude that Iran can be deterred, then a policy of containment, deterrence, anti-missile defenses, all these practical issues um, you know, come to the fore. That's the argument that's going to be going on. So my question to the two of you um, is, uh, what conclusion do you draw? Uh, from your interpretation of Iran, and uh, how, quote, rational is this regime going to be faced with the prospect of its own devastation? Um, I can be brief. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate you mentioning the book. I have a book coming out on uh, November 1st through Cambridge called A Genealogy of Evil, uh, subtitled Antisemitism from Nazism to Islamic Jihadism. Uh, yeah, in the book, I, you, I do make a distinction between influence and parallel, uh, you know, correspondence and the causal connections, and who's reading what, when, as far as that's possible. Um, so I, I do make that distinction, but I, I point out what I have discovered to be points of influence and what I have observed to be parallels. And, uh, the parallels are, I, I would argue, are not coincidental or accidental. Go ahead. Oh, I could also be very brief by just saying uh, nobody knows. <laughs> it's it's the discussion that is being going that is going on. Uh, as I mentioned when I started, uh, uh, I have been following it along uh, the years and. A couple of uh, months ago, there was a very strong position uh, in favor of an Israeli attack or dismiss uh, all the problems regarding oil supply, uh, 
Iranian reaction. It is a case for interrupting the Iranian nuclear program, and uh, even if it is delayed for a couple of years, it's worth it, because in the meantime, uh, we are gaining time. Uh, that position changed over the, the last six months, and uh, the last foreign affairs brought a uh, case for containment and arguments pro and, uh, and, and against it, and I think uh, the solution for the problem is uh, in believing or not uh, that the Iranians are going to uh, behave rationally. So, uh, if the decision makers uh, decide that the Iranians uh, will not commit uh, national suicide, they will uh, accept living with a, with a nuclear Iran and uh, assume that it, uh, Iran is not going to transfer any nuclear weapons to terrorist groups because they will be targeted the same way as if a missile, nuclear missile was launched from Iran. So th that this would be the message given by America, the Europeans and the Israelis. So there is no excuse for not launching uh, a nuclear missile, uh, if that happens anywhere, uh, you are the you are the address, the return address. Uh, I, I have I have uh, no answer. I think nobody has an answer. So in order to eliminate that ambiguity, then the policy implication of what you just said is that the United States would extend nuclear deterrence over Israel the way it oh, has over oh, Western, yeah, that, Western Europe and do that as a public form of that. Yeah. Accepting a nuclear run uh, would probably mean a very strong uh, message from, uh, from America to, to Iran that uh, they are under the magnifying lens that anything that happens uh, <coughs> will, uh, will bring massive retaliation. So we are back to the period be before the uh, balance of terror and uh, considering massive retaliation. Regarding uh, the, the argument that the more nuclear weapons uh, there are, the biggest, uh, the bigger the stability, uh, that only works uh, after the number of uh, weapons uh, became significant. At the beginning, we have a very unstable situation uh, with uh, the uh, perception that eliminating the few weapons that are available is the best uh, course. So uh, I have been talking to many uh, Israelis very close to the government, and I get those arguments with exactly the same weight. Mm -hmm. Can't make a, a decision on it or uh, come out with, a, with an opinion about what's going to happen. But do you think that the last yeah. six months, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Only one sentence about the rationality. Uh, you have read it, I'm sure, all in the newspapers in the two, two or three days ago. After Iran tested the drone aircraft, Ahmadinejad said, I don't know why I wrote this quote. Uh, I read it for you, but it uh, uh, fits now. Uh, quote, a messenger of glory and salvation for humanity, but ambassador of death for Iran's enemies. This is their rationality two days ago. Do you have questions? Well, I was just going to ask uh, if, uh, uh, 
why the idea of uh, naval blockade of Uzbekistan uh, is not entertained, and uh, is there any uh, credence to that? Uh, you mean uh, in the in the law? Yes. Uh, to? Yes. To, to, to prevent that the, the pressure that uh, we can impose on Iran uh, is not just uh, limited to uh, certain uh, uh, monetary, money laundering, banking, and financial uh, policies. The regulatory, that's the regulatory scheme. Uh, the other uh, suggestion that uh, I have heard from time to time is uh, blockading uh, the South. Uh, it has problems, but I'd like to be yeah, the question would be first, uh, what would you avoid getting to Iran? Gasoline. Yeah, but there is no uh, decision by uh, by the six to on an embargo on gasoline because so you can block uh, the Persian Gulf and uh, the Russians will deliver eventually. gasoline uh, eventually. Yeah, at the moment there is no common uh, ground for this kind of sanctions. They have been. Uh, imposing the stiffer and stiffer sanctions, but not really uh, crippling ones. So, uh, the Iranian yeah. economy, David, is based on oil. It's fundamentally based yeah. on oil. And if you stop the uh, bloodstream uh, from no, South, I, I agree with you, but, uh, but there is no. There but, only but, this, but this decision has not been, been taken. I agree with you. If, yeah. if the six, the group of six, take this decision, this will be one way of implementing it, or part of the way of implementing it. But you need the, the Russian to agree, you need the Chinese to agree, well, you need Russia's everybody. Won't, but, uh, let's yeah. the question over here. My name is Michael Spaghi from the Stop the Bomb campaign in Germany against uh, the Iranian bomb. Uh, and my question would be there are some arguments around of containing a nuclear Iran, uh, getting to grip with the bomb, getting to accept a nuclear Iran. And one of the two arguments are around that really shocked me kind of way. My uh, question would be, what do you think to these two arguments? One would be, a nuclear run would totally destroy the whole total framework of the United Nations. Uh, every future effort to kind of uh, prevent proliferation and do other efforts with dictatorial regimes would be, uh, 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 would never work if we once allow a nuclear run. The whole framework organization wouldn't work anymore. And the other one was uh, the undermining of the uh, 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 US position in the Middle East or in the whole world. <coughs> uh, if a nuclear Iran is allowed after all these announcements that we wouldn't allow this or the US wouldn't allow this, uh, US wouldn't have any credibility anymore for the Arab states, the, the friendly Arab states. Uh, what's your opinion to these two arguments? This is certainly one of uh, the costs that has to be weighted against all the other costs regarding uh, impeding Iran uh, through violence, because sanctions are probably not going to, to work. They, I, I don't see an agreement on crippling uh, sanctions against, uh, against Iran. The in economic interests of Russia and China are too, uh, are too strong. Uh, the, the Russians are probably less worried about uh, uh, an atomic Iran than uh, with uh, the market that Iran represents uh, for them. So uh, you, you are right. The, the U.S. will lose credibility. Uh, there will be probably an increase in the 
pressure by uh, Saudi Arabia to de develop some kind of uh, nuclear nuclear capacity. Uh, but at the moment, I don't see the uh, elements or a decision to uh, attack the nuclear facilities in Iran and uh, interrupt the program. Different views of the panel? Sorry? Somebody get a different views of the panel? Can I, can I just ask one more uh, question? Yes. I think that oh, sanctions <laughs> should be a step of, uh, I mean, uh, without pressure, we wouldn't reach anything. So uh, at least I think that sanctions, uh, and more sanctions even, and even gasoline sanctions, uh, could be a, a real option. Uh, the question uh, how far and if it would stop Iran and if they would get from Chinese more help or from uh, India more help or from Russia, it is totally another uh, hypothetical uh, question. Uh, I mean, uh, the, I would say that uh, uh, the West, uh, the Western democracies should do the pressure which is possible. We're out of time if anybody wants to break. Thank you all. Uh, please uh, continue your conversation. You know, it's so interesting, but I think that John had a specific word on the question. And yet, through this whole podcast, as we talk.